Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom, and we'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Takeda Oncology, for their support of Myeloma Crowd Radio. Now, before we get started with this show, I'd like to give you an update on HealthTree. We now have over 4,100 patients participating, and we feel that we have enough patients to start answering really significant and important research questions. So this week, we invite you to fill out your answers for three important questions that we have around family incidence of cancer, and specifically with myeloma. So our first question will be, how many myeloma patients have immediate family members with other forms of cancer, and will see any patterns in the types of cancer they have? I've been approached by several people at some health tree workshops and other patient meetings who have mentioned that they have myeloma in addition to another cancer like ALL or B-cell lymphoma. So we want to see if there are any patterns there. Secondly, we want to know if patients have any secondary cancers in addition. Well, that, that's the secondary cancer question. We, we want to know if patients have other family members with myeloma or precursor conditions like MGUS or smoldering myeloma. So those will be the questions that we'll be asking, and then we'll be able to turn those around and give HealthTree insights and share those on the Myeloma Crowd and the HealthTree site. So if you have a HealthTree profile, we ask that you answer those questions in the full health profile pages, and you'll see we have a brand new design for those pages, and then next week we'll follow up with results. Now on to today's show. The show is a very interesting one, and we will be discussing a hot topic called step therapy, and we'll also be talking about cost of healthcare with Dr. Rafael Fonseca of the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale. So welcome, Dr. Fonseca. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. A pleasure to be here. Well, we're so happy you're here. Um, Let me introduce you just for a little bit before we get started. Dr. Rafael Fonseca is the chair of the Department of Internal Medicine and Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale. He's also Getz Family Professor of Cancer in the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science in the Department of Education Administration. He's a distinguished Mayo investigator since 2010 and is also a consultant in the divisions of hematology and oncology and basic sciences research laboratories at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Fonseca is an editorial board member for the publication Genes, Chromosomes, and Cancer, and is also on the Mayo Clinic Arizona Executive Operations Team and Editorial Board, in addition to being the initiator of the idea of HealthTree. So we are just thrilled to have you, and thanks for coming. Oh, again, thank you. Always a pleasure to uh, work with you. So let's get started by just talking about costs in general. I know there is a lot of debate about healthcare costs, and there are, you know, because myeloma patients are in multiple therapies, cost is definitely an issue for those patients. But can you please help us set the stage in a more general way before we dive into step therapy or other issues? Sure, sure. Well, you know, we um, we live in very complex and difficult times, uh, and, and the, the complexity and some of the difficulties come because of a lot of the progress that has been made in the fight against myeloma. And I would say that anyone could say uh, the same for other diseases where they're making progress. But myeloma, it's a very, very unique situation given the very large number of drugs that have been approved for the treatment of the disease. Just for background, when when I was in training, um, no one really wanted to work in the area of multiple myeloma and primarily because we didn't have many treatment options. And most of the people mm-hmm. with whom I trained, you know, they wanted to go to lymphoma, potentially even leukemia. And little did we know we were going to have this explosion of innovation and new treatments available for patients. 
So effectively, since 1999, we have 11 new drugs that are um, available now for the treatment of the condition. And of course, um, they are available because they have been approved through the uh, regular process of approval through the Food and Drug Administration. And associated with that, there's been a very large body of clinical research that has occurred that has led to this approvals, uh, you know, clinical research in multiple ways, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials, both by industry as well as, as um, uh, NIH and uh, other oncology cooperative group efforts that culminated in, in those approvals. The net result is that the treatment of multiple myeloma is much better than it ever was. And going back again to when I was in training, one could anticipate that an, a patient who was diagnosed with myeloma could have an expected survival of approximately two to three years. In fact, this, this comes out from, from published data. Um, one particular study that I, I think often is a study that was published by Dr. Kyle that he compared uh, myeloma versus uh, being treated with melphalan and prednisone versus multiple other chemotherapy combinations. And they showed there was not much of a difference that melphalan and prednisone was the only treatment. Now, hmm. take, a, take a step forward to 2019, and uh, first of all, we don't even know what the median survival is for a myeloma patient at this point who is treated um, optimally, but we have some early indicators that, that obviously those, those numbers are much, much better. Um, in fact, uh, for patients who are uh, diagnosed now, there's a, a significant fraction of patients that uh, will be able to be um, uh, expecting a survival greater than five or ten years, and in fact, I hold the opinion that there's a small group of patients, hopefully one that will grow into the future, that can have their myeloma permanently controlled, if not cure, in a small fraction uh, of cases. So, uh, we we have seen a dramatic improvement in in our ability to uh, to treat myeloma. That is that is unquestionable. But because of all those efforts, uh, these drugs don't come, um, uh, they're not cheap. They're, they're medications that uh, have been uh, developed through this process of clinical trials, and often uh, they incur a significant expense both uh, for patients as well as for health systems. So, so, so we have those two things that we need to reconcile, and you know, we'll, we'll talk through this uh, throughout the show, uh, but I think it's difficult to say that anyone in particular has, has a clear answer of how this can be dealt with because on the one hand, we do celebrate this progress. On the other hand, we would like to find, as should be the case, always ways to do things uh, more economically and things that are more accessible for patients. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, I think sometimes people focus just on the drug cost, maybe not overall costs, but I think overall health care costs are approaching like 18 19% of our GDP, but that's not just all drug costs. That's everything related to healthcare costs. Oh yes, no, and that's that's an important very very important concept. You know, and I've actually uh, gone down to to some of the details to to see how this works out. If you yeah, if you if you take a an, an economy, that's kind of the number we think about the, you know, the the 19% for GDP. Uh but depending on the numbers and the conditions, they can go anywhere from 10 to 20% of that being uh expenses related to medications. Uh, but the rest is still quite substantial, and, and that includes uh, paying for doctors, paying for hospital stays, uh, diagnostic testing, um, uh, durable medical equipment, and all the other things that come along uh, with the expenses uh, associated with, with healthcare. Now, sometimes the percent is even uh, higher for the contribution of drugs uh, to, to, uh, for the treatment of one disease. So in the case of myeloma, it can be up to 20 to 30% of the total cost of the of the care of patients, but we have to see this in a in a very very comprehensive fashion. So we have to see, okay, how are we spending the dollars? Are the dollars being spent on drugs? And if so, are there any savings that are occurring in other parts of of the health economy that come because better uh, treatments uh, being available for patients? Mm-hmm. Right, patients are living longer. And doing better right. on these treatment combinations, and and myeloma seems to be just a complicated cancer. So you're trying to kill multiple clones at one time, and it's not like you, there's a silver bullet for one type of, you know, one drug that's going to cure everybody in myeloma. It seems. And that is correct. You know, it's 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 a little bit, 
interesting how this has played out. If you if you think about other forms of cancer, some of them have uh, been very well controlled with one uh, pill or one type of medications. The prototype for this is chronic myelogenous leukemia. Um, some cancers have been treated effectively and cured with a single course of chemotherapy. There's a uh, related uh, blood disorder called hairy cell leukemia that with five or seven days of treatment, most patients are cured. And this is kind of with older forms of chemotherapy. And there's other cancers where multiple agents of chemotherapy can be curative, like in testicular lymphoma or Hodgkin's disease. Uh, but in myeloma, it seems that at this point, we don't have that single way of uh, treating the disease. And in fact, and if anything, the more we go along, the the, the more we are realizing that the treatment has to be highly individualized. Now, there, there may be a future where we have something like that, something new, something that cuts across the board. And, you know, to some extent, the treatments uh, we use work for most patients, uh, things like uh, the pills that we we call the image uh, that includes, uh, you know, the Revlimid and the uh, pomalotomide, as well as the injectables, including the carfilzomib and the Valcades. Mm-hmm. Right, so you're using different things. Do you want to just explain a little bit about how each patient is diagnosed with certain clones when they're diagnosed, and then there's this clonal evolution process also that makes it just a little more tricky? Sure. Well, you know, myeloma it's, um, has been also a prototype in how we understand how the treatment of cancer uh, needs to encompass all of the cancer cells. And to your to your question, we have um, uh, been working around this concept of the subclonal nature of myeloma, and that is when when a myeloma patient is being treated, we did realize that uh, within the the population of cells, so if you know if you take a thousand cells from someone f- with multiple myeloma, you start finding that there's subgroups uh, or like little tribes, if you may. Now these subgroups uh, they're all very very similar, so they're almost identical to the next subgroup. But they just have enough little differences that might make one of those groups respond better to one treatment versus another. And in fact, we we have studied this and published on this that you may be treating a situation and then one of the subgroups ultimately predominates, and that's maybe the nature of a relapse. And you have to think about a different treatment for that. So it's um, it's a it's a challenge. And but this is probably true for all cancers. That if you are effective in curing a cancer or in controlling a cancer, you have to be able to control all of those uh, subgroups or subclones, as we call them. Mm-hmm. And I think the Mayo Clinic is in Scottsdale, particularly, is one of the um, most preeminent genetic testing organizations where you're doing a lot in understanding the genetics of the disease. Do you want to talk about the importance of knowing what kind of myeloma that you have? Oh, sure. No, I think it's uh, it's a great point. Not every myeloma is the same, and we, we uh, understand and, and um, understand more and more as we go forward that uh, the different flavors, and those flavors are dictated by the genetic makeup of the myeloma cells, uh, dictate different characteristics for behavior of the cells, how they respond to the treatments, what kind of treatments we should be using, and so forth. And the more we know, the more subgrouping we are doing of the different approaches that you need for each one of those genetic subtypes. Now, I should clarify for the audience, when when I talk about the genetics of myeloma, I'm not talking about the genetics that uh, you inherit from uh, mom and dad. In fact, these are genetic changes that only and exclusively are occurring uh, in the myeloma cell. So uh, we test for them. There's a number of ways through which we can test for them, uh, most commonly via fish but you can do other testing like gene expression profiling and more recently what people will refer to as next generation sequencing. But the bottom line is we're testing for genetic changes, mutations, and other alterations that are occurring very specifically on the myeloma cells and not in the cells of the rest of a person's body. So, you know, if we did the same test on on a skin biopsy or their muscle cells, they would be normal. Uh, but those those changes, again, help us uh, plan for treatment. We uh, discuss the myeloma situation differently according to the, to the risk uh, stratification. We choose agents and we choose strategies for the treatment of myeloma patients differently according to the knowledge that we have from those genetic markers. So I always stress for, uh, for, for patients, uh, it's important that we have this information because it, it does have significant influence on how we conduct ourselves as we as we treat uh, their condition. Mm-hmm. 
So going back to our topic, do you want to give an overview of what is step therapy? What's the idea behind it, and um, where is it, this idea coming from? Sure. Well, um, first of all, let me just say thank you for the interest. This is, seems a little bit far off, but I think it's important for, for people to be aware about this. So step therapy is also known as fail-first therapy. And this is a, a strategy that has uh, been proposed and has been employed in a number of situations where um, someone who uh, provides insurance for a patient, so a payer, or it could be the government through Medicare, could say, well, you know, uh, what we want is for patients to try medication A before they go into medication B. And uh, at first glance, this makes a lot of sense if you're talking about simple conditions. So let me give you an example of one of those first glances. You know, if someone were to come to a physician's office and and they said, well, you know, I have a a cough and maybe have fever, the, the physician might say, well, let's start with maybe just some Tylenol and some rest. And then if things don't go so well, maybe tomorrow we'll try antibiotics and something like that, which makes perfect uh, medical sense. Um, the uh, step therapy, when it is applied uh, to patients who have a cancer diagnosis, needs, needs to be looked at very, very carefully because uh, what um, in its extreme form, what it might require is for people to go uh, through a step of trying a therapy that may be perhaps less effective or maybe perhaps more toxic than the best available and the best treatment that's uh, uh, possible for patients. Now, fortunately, we don't see much of this yet implemented, but uh, there there is uh, certainly a conversation going on and there's a discussion going on regarding the implementation of step therapy through through uh, various payers. And just to land it very specifically in the case of multiple myeloma, you could imagine that someone could say, well, you know, um, we have found that maybe this you know, particular drug is going to be less expensive for whatever reason. Maybe this drug is already available as a generic medication or maybe, maybe you know, this, this drug has been just in general less expensive. So from a payer perspective, you might say, well, I would like, um, again, patients to maybe try this first and then we'll move on to the next line of therapy. And I actually personally mm-hmm. have uh, raised my hand with a little bit of concern there because I don't think uh, that uh, that's um, uh, without further consideration always in the best interest of uh, patients. So I, I do think that uh, physicians and their teams, the rest of the healthcare providers, need to be very attentive to this because I think our first decision should always be and unquestionably be what is the best treatment that's available for for this particular person. So again, I think I think it, this, the step therapy or the step therapy approaches, and, and in fact, I, I think better described by fail first, do make sense in other simpler medical conditions. Let me use another example. If you have high blood pressure, someone might want to say, why don't we try a diuretic for a month and see if that works? But I think they have to be looked at with much greater caution when we think about situations such as cancer and specifically uh, multiple myeloma. And just the, the last comment maybe before, before I stop is that uh, part of the, the reason for my concern is that uh, time is a very important variable when one deals with cancer and certainly when one is dealing with, uh, with multiple myeloma. And, and um, sometimes you may try something and the situation gets more complicated. So you're uh, already starting from a not so good point when you're going to consider that second line of treatment. And uh, patients may not have the opportunity to reach that second point of treatment. In fact, I have been working uh, with with a group of collaborators trying to understand of the patients that go through one line of therapy, how many of them are able to make it to the next line of therapy. Because someone who proposes step therapy might say, well, we can try this first, and then if that doesn't work, we can try that down the line. And unfortunately, we know that uh, there are a number of, uh, of uh, a fraction of patients who might go through a line of therapy who may not have the opportunity to try a second line of therapy because something happened, they maybe developed that toxicity or maybe they got tired from treatment or maybe the disease just got very difficult to control. And that is why one has to be careful when we think about considerations like step therapy, uh, particularly in the context of of cancer uh, treatment. Mm -hmm. 
And I know some other countries, like in the UK, there's an organization called NICE, um, and there's a group, I think, in the United States called ICER, and they're kind of focusing on the costs of health care and how to cut down the costs in health care, and this is um, part of the, so potentially, they think, is part of the solution. But if you look at the costs of health care overall, is just the medication costs in constricting that going to really solve the whole um, issue? And then in cases like myeloma, in countries that have tried things like this, how does that work? Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's a, a couple of uh, components to that question. You know, obviously, one, um, and, and I think everyone has to be mindful of resources. Resources are scarce, and, and uh, people have to think about you know how can we divide things in the best way, the most effective way, uh, a way that is that that is fair. So, uh, you know that's why people are interested in in, in uh, trying to think about frameworks, just like you mentioned with with Nice and and um, and ICER here in the United States. But one has to think about the whole equation. I always say for 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 healthcare, and, and this is a conversation that is often. Uh, not carried to conclusion, one has to think about everything. One has to think about the treatment cost with the medications. One has to think about the treatment uh, uh, cost associated with hospital stays, with complications. Um, and, you know, as an example of this, could be there is there is a medication that maybe, um, uh, you know, in fact, it's better at the treatment of a condition, maybe better at the treatment of myeloma, maybe less toxic, but maybe more expensive. But then when you actually try to factor in everything, uh, and you can factor in not only the expenses, but also the value that comes from this. Uh, for instance, uh, people who can take pills now and can return to a productive life, that has to be taken into consideration if you want to take the macro perspective on this. If you want to take either you know a regional or a national perspective of, of how these interventions may or may not uh, end up being economically uh, beneficial uh, because we know that that sometimes something that is on a unit price more expensive may have significant benefit downstream. So, you know, I'll give you a, a couple of examples. When I when I was in training too as well, that's you know 20 years plus. Um, about a third of the admissions to our hospital when I was in internal medicine were related uh, to patients who had AIDS-related complications. And this was devastating because people were mostly younger individuals who had to quit work, who, who lost their jobs, who their caregivers lost their jobs. So they had all this financial pressure. And by the way, and unfortunately, we had terrible treatment. So a third of our admissions were for patients who had very, very advanced disease. So much so that we were actually seeing building of hospital wings specifically dedicated for patients who were going to be admitted for these complications. We had a, a University of Miami, a specific building that was dedicated to that. And nowadays, the, the medications, again, the units are expensive, but people who have AIDS-related complications can go back into their productive lives and can lead very meaningful and oftentimes people now think perhaps complete lives, and that is because of the advent of the medicines themselves. So, so, so you know, when we talk about this, you have to look at, the whole equation. You have to do the wholesome approach. Now, obviously, there's there's different ways in which uh, people pay for healthcare. And in the United States, we have uh, a mixture of systems, both government and private. Uh, but in other countries, for instance, in the United Kingdom, they have NICE, which tries to determine uh, whether the uh, price to be paid for a medication is something that they uh, would consider cost-effective or they would consider um, um, a reasonable thing to do. Now, uh, how one goes about creating the formulas that um, uh, derive these numbers is very, very complicated because there's many assumptions, and in fact, some of those assumptions uh, do require significant subjective interpretation. Some of them even uh, border on, on, on areas where people get into debates, uh, such as the ethics of, of some of those assumptions. And an example of this would be the use of quality, which we can talk more about that. And then they, mm -hmm. they go on to, you know, they, they get a number and they say, well, it doesn't seem like, we, you know, we want to pay this much. And um, the 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 outcome of that is that, well, you know, one might say, well, you know, we're, we we are maybe protected, if you may, as, as a society from paying too much for something that appears not to give us that much benefit. 
the downfall of that is if you're a patient and you, you have uh, a need for some of those medicines, you may not be able to get it through the health system in, in which you're living. So there are, uh, as, as is always the case with, with uh, questions like this, there are trade-offs. So we see that it's not unusual for our European colleagues to have access to these drugs at a much later date than we have them at the United States. So, so the trade-off we have is uh, because we haven't had that um, type of mechanism established here, we have uh, much earlier access to medications uh, although we pay higher prices for the drugs that are that are used for the treatment of myeloma and most other cancers, uh, so 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 we 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 pay with a higher price, but we have a much earlier access than many of the countries. And we're just using NICE as an example. And of course, you know everyone tries uh, to do the best with what they have and the systems they have. But there's other countries that use use similar systems to try to determine um, the the so-called cost effectiveness. Now. I think from 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 a physician uh, perspective, what I do is I think physicians can wear a number of hats. Sometimes we are educators, sometimes we are clinicians that are seeing patients in the clinic, and sometimes people participate in advocacy efforts or or want to be uh, you know thought leaders in this. And and that's these are all different roles that a physician can play. But in my opinion, when a physician is in front of a patient and they're in they're in the room. Their only interest has to be in doing uh, uh, their best to try to provide the best treatment for that person in front of them. That's you know so-called fiduciary responsibility that physicians have uh, to patients. So it's it's very very important that remains focused. So I'm I'm, I'm quite critical, and I, I I don't see a lot of practical examples, but I do see this happening in conversation when people might say, well, what about uh, society's uh, considerations or the expenses to society? I think you can discuss that out of the room or you can discuss that if your role is being in public health or if a person works for the government or something like that. But but when a physician is at the bedside, their only responsibility is that person in front of them. And that's why one has to be very, very careful with this value, uh, value frameworks. ICER is a recent uh, iteration, a sort of a nice-like structure that has been proposed here in the United States, and they have done some analysis. I, I think it's... Uh, Worth looking at the details of some of, some of those analyses, but uh, I think in a, in a possible future, uh, they could play a role just as as, as nice uh, plays. And again, there could be a, a future where where a society or payers decide this is the right thing to do for them. Uh, but one one must not ignore the fact that if we were to go through a system such as the one that we have with Nice, that results in delayed introduction of those medications into the clinic. So from in general, from a patient perspective, that is not a desirable thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And patients want to be able to sit in front of their doctors, like you were saying, and understand the, their best personal treatment options. I mean, Correct. When you're looking at, you think about earlier use of the RT technology would kind of fit under that category. What you were talking about earlier, can you get a therapy that might not have as many long-term side effects? That's a one-time treatment or something with boosters potentially or even the 3D tumor modeling, because we're funding one of those projects to see which treatment combinations are the best for your tumor at that particular time. And just being able to have the flexibility to do that seems like it would be absolutely critical. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we I, I am convinced we're living in the golden age of medicine right now. I, I think uh, the number of options we have, not only for myeloma, but are coming forward for many other diseases. Is, is fueled by this growth in biotechnology and models like like you describe. Um, I think it's worth noting, and 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 this is this is quantifiable and has been published. Uh, the particular contribution to all of this by uh, scientists, physicians, patient patient support organizations from the United States, who are in the you know in this this uh, uh, frenzy of activity where everyone's trying to look for the for the next uh, best uh, treatment. But the the reality is that this has resulted in progress. Uh, progress sometimes is uh, revolutionary, that a new pathway or a new molecule comes along and sometimes comes in incremental steps. Uh, but even even when it's only incremental steps, when you start adding this up over time, this, 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 is, this is huge. Um, if, if, if one, for instance, starts looking at the results of, you know, phase three studies that have been published in myeloma and you start looking at the rates of response, you can see that over the, the last 10, 15 years, the, the percent of patients responding goes up. 
then people say, well, that's not good enough. How many patients are getting into complete responses and the percent keeps going up? And if you go to one of our meetings, the ASHER, the ASCO meeting, people are almost not caring about complete response because now they want to see the minimal residual disease negative status associated with uh, any one of those combinations in, in this clinical trial. So, you know, we, we live in this very active, um, you know, let me call it effervescent time in, in, in development of clinical options, and certainly myeloma is, is, is a great example for this. And, you know, there, there is a possibility that at some point in the future, um, as one of my colleagues uh, once said, we may be a combination or we may be a drug away from being able to cause MRD negativity in a large fraction of patients. And then, you know, were that to be true, could we think that there is a future, and we don't, we don't have that yet, but could there be a future where all of this development culminates in some form of combination that allows for myeloma to be treated for a rather shorter period of time, safer, with less toxicity, uh, we can only hope so. Mm-hmm. Oh, patients would only hope so. <laughs> that would be fabulous. Yeah, amazing. Well, where, what, what is, you know, you hear these different conversations and you go to these conferences and people are starting to talk about this idea of step therapy. So where is it being driven from or where is it coming from? And then maybe you want to explain what that quality is. Yeah, so most most of the push for step therapy is coming from from payers and and uh, you know payers mm-hmm. whether they're government payers or private payers they they have to look after their their business so they're trying to look for models that would help them spend less in 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 the services that that are provided and and I think that's that's where that comes from I think just just taking a um, um, you know an, an approach of well where where could we potentially be saving money. Um, I, I, I'd like to make reference. There's a recent uh, report. This was released just a couple of weeks ago from an institute called IQVIA. So it's IQ then mm-hmm. VIA, and they they okay. looked at pattern of utilization of drugs in the United States. And so they looked at the number of drugs that are being prescribed, the cost, etc. It's a it's a public report, by the way, which is which is quite interesting. But one of the questions they ask is as follows: If if a patient can get a generic medication, which by the way is 90% of what's prescribed in the United States, so if a patient can get a generic medication, how often do they actually get a generic? So in other words, you know, if there's a generic drug, uh, that means that we should probably try to, to, to use that generic drug because they're gonna have a lower expense. Mm-hmm. So they call this generic efficiency and the number is an astounding 97%. So there's not a lot of room mm-hmm. For improvement, which is a you know it's a common line that you hear from people to say, well, you know maybe they're using the latest and the greatest, but maybe there's a drug that is cheaper, it's going to be quote unquote just as effective. There's almost nothing that is cheaper that is just as effective, and without some incremental value for the drug you're you're paying for. Uh, so let's use an example. You know you look at the at the family of drugs, the the image. So we, when we first started using them, we used thalidomide, and thalidomide was uh, a medication that was revolutionary because it just gave a whole new class of drugs for the treatment of myeloma. But that came with a with a with a steep price of, of toxicity. Almost every patient developed peripheral neuropathy back then, and mm-hmm. also a much lower efficacy than what we see with the new drugs. So then the next step, second generation, was lenalidomide, revlimid, where uh, uh, patients actually had a much lower in some some uh, clinical trials, minimal rate of of neuropathy and, and increased efficacy over 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 thalidomide. Then subsequently came the third generation, pomalidomide, which uh, was uh, so much more potent that we go from 25 milligrams of rivalumab down to two to four milligrams for pomalidomide. And if you see the molecules, they look almost identical. You might say, well, they, they're just changing a couple of things here chemically, but it turns out pomalidomide works in patients where rivalumab had stopped working and for instance, in our laboratory experimentation, we find that it's clearly a much a more powerful image than, than, than Rebelmid. And the, the, the chain of progress doesn't stop there because now there's a clinical trial of this drug, the CC220, uh, which actually has activity at even lower doses and even in patients who have failed prior image. So there's, there's an incremental value of more potency, and we don't see the toxicity of peripheral neuropathy anymore that we used to see with with a little mite. So it all comes with a with a trade off and that's why, you know, when I started with the ZIQVIA, ninety seven percent utilization of generics, that means they're used when they need to be used. There's not a lot of opportunities. 
But something like step therapy might say, well, maybe we're going to try thalidomide, and if, if, if a person doesn't develop neuropathy, we're going to continue. And in my opinion, again, I don't, I don't think that's, uh, that's uh, you know, the right approach. Uh, the, the second part of your question was the quality. So the, the quality is a, is a metric that is used often by um, economic analysis of drug costs. And by the way, if I could say just parenthetically, I've, I've published a few papers on this, but I've taken the approach of every every time I do this, um, I'd like to include and have done so far in every one of the publications an economist just to make sure that my statements make sense because I think they have a, a very unique way of, of, of looking at the uh, use of resources. And I'm, I'm trying to learn from them, but I, I still want to have their, them as sounding board for some of the statements. But the the quality the quality is a is a, is a um, metric that is used by by economists, where they try to measure uh, the value of an intervention, and it stands for quality adjusted life year. And and what what it stands for if 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 you have a drug that you know gives you um, 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 percent improvement, let's say a drug now gives you one extra year of life, that would be a uh, a life year. But the Q and the A is an adjustment that is made because the quality of life after diagnosis is felt to be reduced. So, in other words, if, if because of that treatment uh, you have some toxicity or you cannot do things that uh, you used to enjoy doing, like walking or playing sports, etc., that might result in that life year being adjusted at 50%. So, in, in, in the eyes of, of folks who are using this as an analysis, we'll say, well, you know, that life year, yes, you got a year, but we're going to count it as half because it was not a full year. It's not as when you were able to do sports or engage in, you know, activities of daily living. And and, and there's been a number of people, myself included, who remain critical of that being a metric to be used because in, 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 in ways that, uh, whether they're intended or not, they diminish the quality of life of someone post, the, the value of the life of someone post-diagnosis. Because they're saying, you know, because of your symptoms, we're going to count that extra year only as if it was half of a year. And I, we, we've heard loud and clear, if, you know, if, if you have a cancer diagnosis, be that myeloma or any other cancer, um, I, I think uh, people who have experienced this know this, that every single day counts and your attention to what you do with your life is so much more precious than if anything. A cancer patient would argue that a year of life post-diagnosis is more valuable than it was before they even realized that one may be dealing with a disease that may result in, in, in a life-ending diagnosis. So I, I think that Q and the A is problematic for, for a number of people. Certainly it is for me and other um, uh, people who are interested also in bioethics. And, and therefore, I think it's difficult to accept uh, 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 frameworks that use quality uh, because of those limitations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I would agree with that statement. I think when you have a cancer diagnosis, you actually live more fully than you did before. There's a heightened awareness. And yeah, you know, people are so much more aware of what's ahead of you. I I usually ask people, what are you doing six weeks from now? And you know, they take a pause. Oh well, I don't know. The school year is going to finish. But oftentimes when you deal with patients, you're talking, I want to make it to the graduation, which is on May 17, or I need to be at my, my, my son's uh, wedding, et cetera, because those landmarks uh, have an, an extra sense of uh, urgency and significance than you did have, not that you didn't have any, but of course that you didn't have before the actual diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what can patients do to influence this conversation? You know, I, I think patients need to remain um, engaged and, and um, alert to this. I, I think uh, one, of, one of the things that um, they, they should always ask is, is this the best treatment that is possible? Now, one could envision situations, both here in the United States and abroad, where one person might not have access to a treatment for a number of reasons because of um, uh, the economics, the insurance coverage, or what have you. But I think the conversation needs to start, okay, what is the best treatment that is available and can I get that? Um, I don't think that, I, ca I can't imagine that, that um, you know, from, from the physician's side, people would, would bring this to the bedside um, sort of in a deliberate way to say, well, I'm just going to use these things because I don't want to stress the system or I don't want to stress the payers. I, I want to think that's the case. 
But I, I can imagine that the conversation could very subtly and, and, and almost imperceptibly could start making its way to the bedside where, where, where people, you know, will start questioning these things. And I'll, I'll give you an example that it's, that it's somewhat um, um, uh, a good illustration for this. There is a, there is a national campaign. It's a, it's a wise campaign, but it's a campaign that is called Choosing Wisely that has looked for many years at things that physicians do that they should not be doing uh, because they haven't been proven to be beneficial or they're harmful and they're just adding expense to, to healthcare. Uh, and, and I think uh, physicians agree that everything that comes out in this uh, particular campaign is, is good. Patients should not be doing that. But uh, it, it, in a quick second, you can start seeing that the campaign is only about not doing things. It's not about doing things. Mm-hmm. And doing things is mm-hmm. very important. And there's a, there's a reported, and this has been put out in the literature, I don't even know what the current quantification is for this, but there's a significant delay of introduction of novel therapeutics into the clinic just because people are not doing good things. So just as it is important not to do the wrong things, it's just as important to do the right things. There's a recent study in lung cancer where people looked at patients who have lung cancer and who had the genetics tested for their lung cancer, and the, the investigators asked the question, okay, if you have a patient with lung cancer that has a mutation that will benefit from a specific treatment, what are the odds that the, that treatment is going to be given? And surprisingly, it was slightly under 50% of cases. So even when patients hmm. had the testing and the oncologist should have known that that, uh, that particular drug should have been added to their treatment regimen, it only happened in about one in two patients. So, so I think, uh, being, uh, well, I, uh, we don't know. And I think this was kind of a first study. I, it could be a number of reasons. It could be uh, one is that the, maybe the, the, you know, the pace at which oncologists are moving through the clinic. I think some of this could be prevented by having more informed patients. And, that's, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about how something like Health Tree could help in that regard. Um, it may be that, that there, there is some administrative issues with how uh, healthcare is, is conducted in the sense that, you know, you could see a patient who sees an oncologist, the report comes back two weeks later. This patient is now seeing someone else in the team uh, that, that is caring for this group of patients, and that's just filed under the medical record, but no one acts on that. So those are the kind of things mm-hmm. that I think need to be solved and need to be helped, and that's part of uh, what, you know, you, uh, of course, the, the, the team within, under your, your leadership with Health Tree is trying to change some of that. So that patients think about these things, and and I think uh, the bottom line is just being more informed. Patients will make you a better patient. Yeah, I agree. Because if you're educated as a patient, you can write down your notes and ask your questions, and make sure you get everything answered. And you do realize that everybody's so busy. Everybody is. The doctors are pushed really to the max, in my opinion, in what in terms of what you're expected to do. And um, sometimes things just, you know, get missed just just because everyone's so busy. Everyone is so, you know, I I, yeah. I play a role here. Me, um, as as you mentioned during the introduction, I I uh, have an administrative role chairing the Department of Medicine, and we're very fortunate in a system like Mayo Clinic where we have um, uh, what we call the unhurried appointment. And for me, that means that if I see a new patient, I will get an hour to see the person. If you see someone in return, you get 30 minutes. And and that's considered very generous. Uh, you have health systems where patients are seen um, every uh, 10 to 15 minutes sometimes with, with people running between the rooms. And um, I, I think mm-hmm. one, of, one of the antidotes to those things falling through the cracks, uh, it's still being a very informed patient. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And that's one of the reasons that we're creating new things like Health Tree University that will be coming soon for patients so you can really get up to speed. So you mentioned, um, well, you mentioned innovation at the beginning, and I kind of want to go back to that and see what your ideas and thoughts might be about innovation. Because if you look at um, the market, you know, there are lots of different companies who are developing different medications in myeloma. And I think we're so lucky, like you were saying at the beginning, that we have such interest from all these different groups. I think that's what shocked me the most being at the last ASH meeting was just the Mm -hmm. number of companies that are jumping into the space. How do you encourage greater innovation 
um, especially with such a lengthy approval cycle. And I know the FDA is has a job to make sure that we have drugs that are safe. But are there things that could be done to, um, and I know myeloma has benefited from this accelerated approval process, but how does that process in the regulatory side um, impact the innovation, in your opinion, from, from a clinician's perspective? Sure. Well, I mean, this is this is a very complicated question because uh, you could take a couple of approaches. You might say, well, um, I think everyone agrees with the statement that innovation is good. It, it would be hard to argue against. But the level of evidence that sustains what we consider innovation is different for different people. So you could take an approach where someone might say, well, I could envision a situation with regulatory authorities, be that the FDA or other um, um, authorities abroad, could take more of the view of saying our purview is more focused on the safety than it will be on the efficacy, and then we can we can let things uh, uh, play out uh, down the line with regards to efficacy um, in what's called now the real world, and 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 there is actually some 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 good precedent for that. Um, an example for that would be things such as um, let's use a medication, Faridac, the panobinostat. Uh, Panobinostat, um, uh, many in the audience will probably have not heard about it, even though it's an FDA-approved drug for the treatment of myeloma, which is, in the in, in my eyes, was a fairy tale on how it was uh, developed. It's a uh, preclinical work from the group of Dana-Farber identified this as a potential target for, for a drug in myeloma. They designed a clinical trial. This was a phase three clinical trial that if it was any other disease, if, if it was being used in uh, say, pancreatic cancer would have been a blockbuster medication, uh, but it turns out it didn't have the, the the efficacy and certainly had significant toxicity. So that, number one, is a medication, first of all, the company, Novartis, that developed this clinical trial, which was very well conducted and it was uh, subsequently published in procedures journals, decided to stop promotional activities because doctors were not using panobinostat because the data was not supportive of its use, and most recently, I just heard that the drug was sold to another company um, to see hmm. if, if they would have interest in that. But uh, the reality is that um, the, the the market didn't support that drug being a, a good tool for the treatment of most myeloma patients. And there are some patients who will respond very well. So you know, if someone is taking it and hearing in the audience, uh, you know that 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 is great. It's just that at large, it was not a good uh, medication. So that would be the approach of saying, well, the FDA should only focus on safety. But even if you take that approach, you could say, well, you know, if you treat 200 patients, what if there was a drug that um, caused a serious side effect, let's say blindness in one in 10,000 patients, you would never know that from clinical trials. So, so, so part of that still comes mm -hmm. from that uh, real world experience afterwards. On the other hand, if you take an approach that you say, well, no, what the FDA should be not only safety, but it should also do extensive studies for efficacy. And, and should only approve drugs once it's very clear that these drugs have a very significant impact on, on overall survival and we have uh, very large cohorts that we know is safe, the net result will be that you will have uh, drugs that are going to be better tested by the time they reach the market. But unfortunately, they may be reaching the market five or 10 years later than would you have uh, been able to use before with 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 a more uh, liberal approach to the approval. So an example of this is pomalutamide. Pomalutamide was approved before there were large phase three clinical trials, and arguably there were a lot of patients that got benefit from pomalutamide. So there is no easy answers. And in fact, if, if one might say that if you lengthen the approval process, because that's going to erode into the time that the drugs will have patent protection, any company that launches a product like that will have to ramp up the prices because they need to recover the investment in whatever time remains of their patent protection. So there's there is no easy answer. I tend to, to, to be more biased and skewed towards the idea of approving early because I think that also fosters um, uh, competition. And and if, if, if you have a, a drug that works against the target, when another company could more quickly develop another drug against that same target and maybe compete. And some of that, for instance, was seen with a case of hepatitis D. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I I think I would agree there because currently it's very hard to close that loop right now, right? With the patient-reported real-world data, 
There's not a right. system that's capturing all the real-world data from all the myeloma patients who have been on all these different lines of therapy. So you're not actually quite sure how everybody responded. You see the clinical trial results, but you don't see the 10- or 20-year you know, outcome data from that. So it seems like having a data system to capture it all is really important. Um, and then can you give patients an idea of how the cost that it takes for a pharma company to get through a phase one or phase two or phase three study? Because you were saying earlier, the, if you're participating in a phase three study with hundreds of patients and you're comparing it to the standard of care, um, which maybe you could do in a different way if you just had a data system that was capturing that data, and you wouldn't have to do it necessarily in a phase three clinical trial to keep the costs down and to let more pharma companies jump into the space and try it out and see what they can do. No, there's again, this this is an important point because there is no question that the process of drug approvals is incredibly expensive and perhaps even getting more expensive when you look at the efficiency with which uh, clinical trials uh, can be run to ultimately lead to approval of these drugs. And and the numbers the numbers vary depending on on how the computations are made. The most uh, comprehensive analysis has been done by a group at uh, Tufts University, and they came up with a number of around 2.6, 2.7 billion dollars per drug. Now uh, that is uh, disputed, and some people don't like the the, the um, algorithms that are used, and some people uh, dispute the number because the the, the group has been uh, funded as one of their funders includes uh, sectors from the from the pharmaceutical companies. But uh, to the best of my knowledge, no one has been able to actually uh, refute uh, uh, that number with 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 as as a comprehensive an approach. And part of what they have is they have proprietary methods for the analysis of this. Now, I'm aware of two other individuals who have done an analysis similar to this, uh, uh, Meryl Matthews, and then also a, a, a reporter from Forbes, uh, Matt Harper, who actually came to very, very close numbers looking at the expenditures in R&D versus revenue. Now, um, at the very least, I think some of the some of the the, the the numbers that you know could be thrown would be close to a billion dollars in the low end, so it's one one to two point seven billion dollars. So it takes a lot of money, and and, and you know, as, as the saying goes, that first pill costs two point six billion dollars, the second pill is going to cost cents to be produced. So it's it is the process of innovation, is the importance of intellectual property protection, and 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 the the period that these drugs will have. On their patent, and 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 I, again, I don't I don't think anyone has the the right answer. Obviously, there's there's a lot of conversation about the duration of patterns and in, the patents, and in particular, the transition of medications from patented to generic, which I think everyone agrees that that should happen. Um, but there is, uh, if you may, there is a period of time and a number of sales that occur during that period of patent protection. That is what determines the revenue for uh, for these companies and. You know, and it's 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 pretty complicated. That's why I I, I probably would, shouldn't uh, go out and venture to say much more on, mm -hmm. on on the finances. It's not my area of expertise. But I was looking at the list of the most profitable uh, companies last year. It turns out Lilly uh, lost two hundred million dollars. Lilly, which is the company which is at the forefront right now of the conversation mm -hmm. regarding um, uh, insulin. So so I I think uh, you know that as is probably true for most human endeavors things are far more complicated than they seem at first glance. Yeah, I'm just wondering because it seems like my llama has set a unique pattern and been really fortunate in its development of the myeloma drugs, where you have drugs like daratumumab and carfilzomib and pomalidomide that, according to some researchers that I talked to on Saturday, they said those were benefited by this accelerated approval process. So they almost got approved after the phase two study instead of waiting for all the phase three results to come out. And then you can kind of, like you were saying, get them used earlier in the clinic and have people using them. And um, maybe that, maybe an earlier approval, like you're saying, after a safety assessment and then letting the market decide what's better if you have a system that can capture the outcomes might be less expensive and then really drive innovation. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I do like, um, in, a, in a way that I think is, is of good to everyone in the Milo community, is that we have the interest from, from investors in biotech. 
because uh, absent this interest, uh, the money probably could be going to some some other things, telecommunications, laser technology, and other things. Uh, but the fact that myeloma has been um, a path by which uh, several companies have been able to get their drugs approved stirs even further interest in in, in myeloma. So people saw that uh, there were approvals for for thalidomide and then Velcade and uh, um, you know Revlimid. So so that stirred a lot of interest. So people actually uh, brought money to the table, so to speak. And you see what's going on right now with um, other diseases such as Alzheimer's where many companies have lost a tremendous amount of money and there's a big worry that people will not want to invest anymore in clinical trials that are targeting Alzheimer's disease, which is obviously a huge problem when it comes down to, to human health and longevity. But just companies are, are, are failing there. Just recently, a, a large company, Biogen, had a huge clinical trial uh, fail and the, the, the billions of dollars that were lost in that will not be recouped and unfortunately, that sends a signal that that may be a, an area where you may not want to be doing a lot of clinical research, which is quite the opposite of what we have seen in multiple myeloma. Right, and what we want for these terminal want, diseases that are yeah. yeah that are so difficult to live with. Do you think uh, earlier testing would be less expensive and um, over the long run if more testing is done? Because I know there's data that shows that if you're diagnosed with, let's say, MGUS or something, one of the early precursor conditions, you actually do better over time just because you're watching it more carefully and you're able to intervene when your numbers start going up. Um, do you think more testing would do would be better, or do you think that's just an extra expense that um, we shouldn't be spending? Well, I, I think it needs to be tested a little bit further uh, through population-based studies, and some of them are going on through the Scandinavian countries. But I think there could be a future, a better future, where people could do early testing, and then if you have someone who has indicators of early myeloma in the form of smoldering or an advanced MGUS, then maybe you keep a, a close eye on things. Certainly, you want to intervene before people would have lost either kidney function or they would have developed uh, bone lesions that would lead to pain. And in the ideal world, you could even think about treatment. And in fact, we are starting treatment earlier than we used to based on some of the revised criteria now for treatment initiation for multiple myeloma. So the ideal world would be someone gets treatment before they have complications, maybe with highly effective therapy, with uh, uh, you know regimens that can cover most of the subclones, and ideally also with a time-limited duration. I mean, right now we, we, we see that maintenance is very, very important, but it would be even better if we could treat myeloma for say, you know, two weeks or four months or some defined period of time that would allow people to return back to their to their lives without having to uh, require treatment anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, patients would love that. Okay, my final question would be, how do you see a data system like HealthTree helping with this, helping on the innovation side and also helping to overall help reduce costs well, I think that, first of all, uh, the, the ability to understand better treatments and their side effects and, and things to be uh, looking out for and, and, and how they uh, provide durable responses in patients with different um, conditions or with different genetic makeups uh, would be probably the path for the future. Um, a personalized medicine approach where the patients get uh, what's often stated as the right treatment you know, at the right time would be ideal so that maybe patients with certain genetic markers could get a um, group of drugs that, are going, that is going to be effective and other patients without those markers will be spared uh, the toxicity and the expense of, of those medications. Um, a great example for this, and I know this is some pause, so I'm not going to use this as, 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 as a venue to say people should go into this medication, but it was venetoclax. Venetoclax turned out to be highly effective and active against a subgroup of patients, uh, namely those who have the translocation 1114. And uh, we just need to go back and understand, uh, you know, what were the, the, the issues related to the, to the um, uh, combination with, with, with Velcade. But it's not far-fetched to imagine that once everything gets clear that maybe drugs like venetoclax would be used even in situations like early um, disease or perhaps even maintenance, uh, but we have to get all the safety signal cleared before we do that. But I think that's just one example where things will go into the future. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think what's happening in myeloma care is so exciting and so promising, and um, it's just encouraging to see what's happening. So we just hope that everyone. Our goal is to help find the right treatment for the right patient at the right time and fund research that's going to be doing that. So we're just we're excited. Thank you. No, it's very very exciting time. Obviously. As I always say, today's best is simply not good enough. We need to keep going, but uh, things are moving in the right direction. Yeah, they are definitely. Well, if anyone has a question for Dr. Fonseca, you can call 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. And sometimes we get a group that's really shy. <laughs> and we have that group today. So, Dr. Fonseca, I'm going to thank you so much for uh, participating and for joining us on this really important topic uh, about cost in myeloma care. It's just, you know, you have a lot of things you think about when you're a patient, and cost is definitely one of them. So, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, it's always my pleasure, and I look forward to our next conversation. Okay, thanks so much. And um, thanks for listening to Myeloma Crowd Radio. And we invite you to tune in next time to learn more about the latest in myeloma research and what it means for you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.